At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello, Sorsha. Last but not least. Yeah, it's great to finally be on. It's very surreal. Yeah, it's been a super evening so far and uh, it's going to get even better. You tell us about you. So I'm Sorsha O'Connor and my background is in neuroscience. I did neuroscience at the University of Manchester for my undergrad. And I was lucky enough to do a year abroad where I got to do research into schizophrenia. And that was where I really realised that my passion lay in helping to kind of problem solve in the context of psychiatry and try and look at multifaceted conditions from all of their perspectives. But I realised that it's quite difficult to look at a condition like schizophrenia because it does have a neurodegenerative component. And my interests gravitated more towards obsessionality-based patterns, things that I think could be reversed more easily. And I was lucky enough to find this PhD with this group after my master's in cognitive neuroscience. I'm running the CD study, which is basically administering a low dose of psilocybin to OCD patients. And in design, it's very similar to Hannah's panorexia trial, except we're giving a lower dose of 10 milligrams rather than 25. Okay, so why don't we just explain what OCD is and why it's worth doing this kind of study? Yeah, so OCD is a very complex behavioural pattern, and I think at its crux, it's best viewed as an unwillingness to tolerate uncertainty around a specific theme. And people can have many themes, or they can just have one theme, and sometimes their theme arises from a traumatic incident. Other times it's something, you know, they, they just start to fear a particular consequence or outcome, and they feel compelled to perform compulsions. That's the second key facet. You have the theme and the fears, and then you have the compulsions that you perform to try and assuage the anxiety that you feel. And it becomes a very vicious cycle that's very challenging for people to interrupt intuitively. And I don't know if you want me to talk about existing treatment paradigms. Yeah, why is it important? Why are we doing something as uh, weird as giving people with OCD psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, it's very tenacious as a psychiatric pattern and relapse rates are really common. The first line treatment is something called exposure response prevention, which is a type of psychotherapy. And it's very effective when it's done correctly, but basically it involves people having to face their worst fears in their imagination or in their real life without ritualizing or performing compulsions. And sometimes these compulsions will be avoidant, so they might have to do something and not avoid, you know, another component of that experience. Or they might, for example, if they have contamination OCD, they might have to get comfortable, you know, touching things in the supermarket and then not washing their hands, you know, eating other people's food. It's incremental, but to be done well and to be effective, people really have to pinpoint their specific feared hypothesis. And often it's tough for therapists to help people do this. And certain types of OCD, like just right OCD, which involves more of 
a proclivity for, you know, rearranging things and and getting a hit of feeling that things are just right. It's very hard to pinpoint the key underlying fear. So all in all, people don't always get amazing results with ERP, even though mechanistically it does. It's very aligned with neuroscience and how it works and how it helps to, to treat the phobic pattern. People are also given pharmacotherapy. It's common to be prescribed an antidepressant drug. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are the most commonly given, which are SSRIs. And these can also produce moderate alleviant in, in symptoms, but people typically only see around, I mean, people can get good results, but overall around 50% of people are left treatment resistant after just taking an SSRI. So some people will be given adjunctive antipsychotics or mood stabilizers like lamotrigine. But again, even with these combinations of, you know, pharmacotherapy and ERP on top of it, people are left dealing with this same pattern. And sometimes yeah, it's it a very, very difficult disorder to, to get remission, to get full of curing. And that it's, a, yeah. it's often, therefore, you know, very enduring. And actually very damaging to families as well, because it's, um, families have to change their behavior to fit in with the uh, behaviors and the desires and the uh, sort of misbeliefs of the, of the patient. So it's actually both common and very difficult to treat, which of course is why we've been looking for alternative treatments. And that's why we wondered about that. What do you think, this, what's the theory, do you think? How would you explain, to, how do you explain to the people you're recruiting why we might be using a psychedelic? I mean, it's very complex as all the others have insinuated, you can't really pinpoint one specific thing. It's very hard to pinpoint one specific rationale, but the idea is that psilocybin works fundamentally very differently to other, obviously, existing pharmacotherapy. And I mean, if we look at OCD as well, if we look at the prerequisites, like what you need to have to develop it, there are lots of different theories and it's still partially enshrouded in mystery. It's not completely clear, but we see that as well as having an ability to have high levels of anxiety, which is essential for the pattern to develop, people also have quite some innate obsessionality and that in and of itself sounds vague but if we look at that from a neuroscientific perspective and using cognitive tasks as well so more cognitive neuroscience we can see that people people are deficient in certain areas of cognition one key example is something called set shifting which is the ability to shift attention from one facet of like one dimension of a task to another so they can learn the rule very well they can memorize things there are no intelligence deficits, but it's just this ability to disengage. And I think this is really relevant because none of this, this therapy or this medication, you know, promises to, to help any or to kind of assuage any of these cognitive components. And we should say that's a relatively recent discovery that there's, there's a brain circuit of disengagement, which is actually uh, harder for people with OCD to engage. And that's yeah. why they can't disengage. And it's, it's, you can actually you can show that there is this frontal posterior circuit in the brain, which is overactive in people with OCD. Yeah, exactly. And we also see these deficits in unaffected relatives as well. So we're, look, we're thinking it might be an endophenotype and something that exists, you know, reliably potentially before OCD symptoms develop. Mm. So going back to psilocybin, the idea is that psilocybin is well poised to, to essentially, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to kind of go into, I don't know how much detail to go into, but there's a lot of evidence that it can help with different areas of cognitive inflexibility mm. in both animals and humans. There haven't been so many applications of this in, you know, psychiatric disease, but but we believe mm. that if this feasibility study proves auspicious in its results, that maybe, you know, this, this drug could be given 
in low doses alongside something like ERP? Yes, I mean, there was a study uh, done by Moreno and colleagues in New Mexico, I think, about 20 years ago. Interesting study. They did a very small number of patients with OCD, and, uh, and they were basing it on the serotonin theory that, you, you know, you stimulate the serotonin receptors, and that's kind of what SSRIs do. They ran out of money, like many people working in the field then, you know, because it was so expensive to work and to work uh, with psychedelics because of all the regulations. But the results were, you know, encouraging, and also that it was safe, and that was uh, helpful to us when we were getting permissions to do this study. But one thing, one thing we need to tell you, which is this is a different study to all the others, because we don't give the patients a trip. And do you want to explain to them why that is? Yeah, exactly. This is relevant. So it's a lower dose. Like we said, it's 10 milligrams rather than 25. And we opted for this lower dose because leading researchers in the field think it's more tolerable for people with an anxiety-rooted pattern to have a lower dose of psilocybin. It's quite controversial. Some people think this might, be, might not be the case because it might not be enough to break through. But so far, we're happy with the results and the experiences that people are having. And... Yeah, I, I think as well, intuitively, I think it's, yeah, I think it makes sense to be experimenting with this dose and to be using the smallest amount we can use and see maybe if, you know, people people could use this in the future in a lower commitment type fashion, you know, just, well, still high commitment, but not thinking they're going in with, you know, full visual effects and everything. It's it's quite interesting. So, yeah, so I mean, the truth is we, as you, when you do any research on patients, you have expert patients. And the expert patients, our expert OCD patients said, you want us to do what? You want us to lose control? It must be bad. We're not going to do that. So we had a, we sort of explained to them, well, you know, it might be better to have a full trip because that might, well, just perturb that network more effectively. And, and they said, forget it. And so we said, okay, let's, let's work out whether we can actually find a dose which you would be prepared to take that we could use to facilitate you learning to overcome your obsession. So that's what we do. The dose we use, a 10 milligram dose, it, it's not hallucinogenic, but it's definitely, they, well, you can comment on the sort of experiences they have. Yeah, well, people do report quite high ratings for subjective psychedelic experience. Some are psychedelic naive, others have had experiences in the past, but I can't say too much about, obviously, the participants. It's, we're, we're seven participants in out of 20, so it's very much ongoing. But so far, every participant has, you know, rated quite high, sort of seven out of 10. And it's not like they're underwhelmed. And so far, yeah, they've been having some quite moving experiences and having some breakthroughs and memories and mm -hmm. reminiscing and things, yeah. And this, is, this is an interesting new par paradigm because... I mean, it might turn out eventually that other people do psychedelic doses of psychedelics in OCD, and that might be better. But what I find quite exciting about this particular model is that we are using this lower dose to produce an increased flexibility in the brain. The patients are engaging in behavioral processes, which we think they might acquire better skills at because of the cognitive flexibility and because of the neuroplasticity. And it might be this could be the start of a whole new era, sort of a theme or a new trend in psychedelic therapy where we use sub-psychedelic doses to facilitate all kinds of learning. And that doesn't have to be in psychiatry. It could be in disorders like dyspraxia, dyslexia, amblyopia. Where's the visual guy? Yeah. <laughs> so it's quite an, this is a new model, uh, which is, you know, we, we were kind of forced into it, but now we're actually discovering it. It's, it's quite, uh, 
it's both powerful and potentially uh, more acceptable, yes? Yeah, exactly, and because this is just a feasibility study, we're not we're not doing intensive, you know, OCD-specific therapy. We've got a great team of therapists and they're amazing psychedelic guides and very experienced, but they're not really kind of diving in and, you know, identifying the theme and maybe the person's core fears. So they're not really doing that kind of work because we can't do that at this early stage. But we are still seeing really good results. Again, you know, small sample size and can't reveal the results. Don't yeah. apologise. That's that's more than the, the people in New Mexico did. So, <laughs> And we're going on. We're hoping to get about 20. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. We're hoping for 20 completers, hopefully by roughly this time next year. And then, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to do a randomised control trial or, you know, we'll be able to pave the path for that type of trial. So, It's yeah. important to say that this, uh, this trial was funded by a, uh, an OCD charity called the Orchard Charity. And uh, we're very grateful to them for doing it. And it's um, really, relic, there's been so little innovation in the, in, the, in the field of OCD in, in the last 30, 40 years. So yeah, we're... Uh, if we do make an impact, we should be, uh, we, we'll be very pleased, and I'm sure that many of the patients will be very pleased as well. Okay, uh, is there anything else you want to say? I mean, one thing that comes to mind that I think is really relevant about psilocybin and its potential benefits for OCD is that I think it's really important for people to have almost a safety net or feel like they have kind of innate faith when they're recovering from this kind of pattern. And I see this, you know, time and time again with participants, you know, talking about breakthroughs and you know, whether with spirituality or religion or maybe just a really close friend or, you know, something helping them actually confront their symptoms and properly desensitize. And I think psilocybin, as well as obviously all the mechanistic neuroplasticity changes, I think it does show people that they can feel positive emotion. And often these people haven't, you know, felt in flow and, you know, safe in a room alone for a long time. So I think you know, maybe expanding the time horizon, thinking if this does become widely available, I think yeah, I think it acts at the micro and the macro scale. And I think ultimately all these shifts, you know, shifts in emotion, they, they do, you know, there is a neural basis of these two. So it's all neuroscience ultimately. But Yeah, it's really important. I mean, we heard from Hannah with the, the patients with um, anorexia, chronic, a chronic illness like anorexia, chronic illness like OCD anxiety, detaches you so much from the world that it's actually, you know, you're almost not part of it anymore. So anything that helps you get back to where you used to be is, uh, can actually you know, be very empowering. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was a really clear and interesting talk. Yeah, I was just interested in your thoughts on, I know you said at the minute the kind of treatment approach isn't necessarily like ERP or the kind of existing models for OCD, but do you have thoughts on in future how psychedelics could kind of almost interact with exposure and response prevention therapy could that i'm not sure exactly how that would look would it involve doing it almost under a dose or kind of would the kind of increased flexibility of psychedelics maybe contribute to being able to access erp more easily yeah that's a really good question i think it could be a bit of both i do think erp could be done under the influence of the psychedelic but i think also erp should be optimized to be even more precise that's one that's one theory I have. I think the brain generates prediction errors when ERP is done correctly. And I think, you know, people go into a situation and they do something that really scares them or they try and make something happen through paradoxical intention that scares them. And I think personally, I think it's very effective when, when this is done really precisely and the person really pinpoints what's going, you know, what they fear going wrong. 
and they try and make it happen, then it doesn't happen. So I think, first of all, ERP should be more precise and personalised. And secondly, I think hopefully, you know, if psilocybin is widely available, I think it could be, this could be done during the experience, but also afterwards. So yeah, I, I'm not sure how an intensive ERP during a psilocybin experience would look like, but maybe it could be imaginal. I think that can be very effective as well. Not quite hypnotherapy, but just an actual imaginal experience of, you know, imagining yourself even, you know, doing things associated with your worst fear, if it's contamination, imagining yourself maybe eating or, you know, like touching food in the supermarket, that kind of thing. And if it's psychosis, OCD, maybe imagining, actually that might not be appropriate on psilocybin, but if it's um, something more like, something like just right OCD you know someone imagining themselves not being able to to twist that picture yeah exactly but then I think it will still need to be done afterwards because I think I'm a firm believer that all of these patterns need to be unwound over a period of time and I don't think any I think maybe sometimes a single experience could be could induce a big shift for someone but I think if it's really ingrained and it's been going for years and different themes are involved, I think someone needs to go out and be in multiple different, you know, environments and states as well, and then continue to like test their feared hypothesis and see it doesn't come true. So, so yeah, a bit of both, but I do think, yeah, to summarize ERP under the influence of psilocybin could also be a game changer like, as part of that process. Sasha, a quick question on that. Is there a chance that some of your participants in this trial might actually give themselves an imagined experience? That's a really good question too. I think, to be honest, I, I'm not so sure. This is one thing I, I would love to be able to go and influence some of this, but because it's a feasibility study, I, you know, we, we can't really do that. But I think I'm not sure that's likely because I think the general set and setting is just very kind of healing and very neutral. I think maybe if a participant really believed in, you know, ERP before and thought I've seen some success but haven't really broken through, I've been too scared to do it, they might do that experiment themselves. But I don't know if people would do that unguided. I'm not sure how aware the average patient with OCD would be that they need to unpick their their pattern like that. So it really depends on the person. Hi, Hi again. Um, so I thought the intermediate dose um, was quite an interesting idea. Um, I've heard that Intermediate doses can actually disproportionately lead to bad trips um, because you're not, you don't fly far enough away from reality that you forget you've taken the drug and you're, it's not a microdose. Um, you kind of lose, like you move away from consensus reality, but you're aware that you're doing that and that, that can become very stressful, which if that's true, um, creates an interesting informed consent problem. It with, does, it's not true. It's not true? It's not true. No, no, okay. That's, that's Holzer, it. 2022. Yeah. They've done a very nice study, dose-ascending dose study with both, well, with three, with, with psilocybin, LSD, and I think mescaline. And lower doses actually have less adverse effects than higher doses. The only adverse effects are maximal if you exceed the optimal dose, if you go above 25. Great, okay. Well, that, yeah, clarifies that. Thanks. Yes. Thank you so much for this fascinating talk. So I was curious if you've actually tested the genetics of your patients. A really simple example, I have gotten my genetics sequenced and I discovered that I had a vitamin D genetic mutation that precluded my cells from mentitious from being able to absorb vitamin D and I had so many other cascading issues. So there's quite a bit of empirical evidence at the intersection of genetic testing and nutrition and supplementation and detoxing 
along with the use of psychedelics to help resolve OCD, perfectionism, and these other issues too. So I was curious if you have, and if you haven't, I highly recommend doing that so you can identify the genetic variants that these patients are most likely having. And then along with psychotherapy and psychedelics include nutrition and supplementation protocols to help them resolve their issues faster. Yeah, this is definitely a very valid point, And I really believe in the power of nutrition as well. And even things like intermittent fasting. In terms of screening people's genetics, we don't have the capacity for that in this trial. But I think I think in the future, ideally, that kind of thing should be done because it is, it is really interesting. And I guess a vitamin D deficiency would affect melatonin, serotonin production, all of that. So I can see how that ties into sort of canon canonical view of, of OCD and, and its etiology. And I think, yeah, I, I think it's also really important for people to even things like limit refined sugar, you know, things like that. You see decreased inflammation and better executive functioning. And I think executive functioning is something that's very hindered in OCD. And we see that across, you know, all facets of the of the cognitive deficits. They're all, we summarise them as, as an imbalance and goal-oriented to habitual behaviour. And I think anything that makes you sharper, you know, better nourished and all of that and makes your brain work better will will help your symptoms at least slightly. So yeah, I, I also agree with that completely. But I think, you know, at this point, we need to just show the, that the drug works and we need to look at it in terms of neuroimaging and things, you not have too many things to measure, but definitely going forward, keep that in mind. It's just a suggestion. I recently watched a play by Adam Strauss that's called The Mushroom Cure. And he's a comedian. He's talking about how he treated his OCD with psychedelics. And I just wanted to recommend it because it's really heartbreaking and it's really really puts everything into into context so just a nice. suggestion check that out yeah. the mushroom cure you said mushroom cure nice there's also a wonderful if you go on youtube and you search mushrooms ocd there's a canadian student female student who talks about how she intercures her or at least treats her ocd with with um, mushroom tea and actually that's got me got me interested in this i didn't particularly believe the New Mexico study, <laughs> but when I saw, you know, 12 years ago, this, this YouTube, and it's very compelling and very straightforward, and she explains and she say, tells you the time causes the effect on it. You know, that's, it's quite likely that it's true, because why would anyone bother to go onto YouTube and tell you about this? And that sort of, that's began to interest me in the possibility of psychedelics working against me. Thank you. Really cool stuff. I know you said you only had seven people so far, but have you seen that after trying the 10 milligrams, that the people are more likely to be open to a higher dose. Why am I asking? Is because I know in other clinical trial, there was a case where a person experienced in a country where psychedelics are illegal. They've experienced the trip and I said, well, that was great. I'm now going home and getting a mushroom kit from Holland. Yeah, to be honest, people do. I think about out of the seven, around like three or four people have said something along those lines. Not necessarily about taking more, but just wanting it to be part of their lives. But yeah, that's not something we officially ask, but it's an interesting thing maybe to add in the final visit if we can do it in an unbiased way or, you know, a way that doesn't, I guess, maybe at the very end, so we're not priming them or anything or priming them to be disappointed. That could be intriguing to see if, if that shifts. I don't know how we'd do it, though. It might not be feasible. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, yeah, we can't do it in this study. This study is about showing it's safe to give people who are often very frightened of psychedelics a, a dose, which is both psychoactive uh, and also potentially therapeutic in time who knows i think this this field will evolve if the results carry on going the way that we're going to in a positive way then 
I'm sure there will be trials using higher doses and there'll be more trials using our dose. And uh, eventually, you know, when you're a professor, you'll be able to decide what you want to use. Can we say thanks? Maybe. <laughs> Thank you so much for that amazing discussion. And finally, please, can we give a huge round of applause to our host, Professor David Knight.